Welcome to Sparking Wholeness, where we talk all things related to nutrition for mind, body, and soul. I'm your host, Erin Carey. I'm a survivor of bipolar disorder and a self-proclaimed nutrition nerd who loves asking why. As a certified integrative nutrition health coach, my goal is to help people find balance, and I want to help you find ways to spark wholeness in your life. For more information, check out sparkingwholeness.com or on the Instagram handle, Sparking Wholeness. And now, get ready for today's awesome show. Hey everyone, it's Erin Carey and welcome to Sparking Wholeness. Today we have a super informative and interesting episode for you and I'm sitting here with Matt Erb. Matt is a physiotherapist originally trained at the University of Iowa and currently based out of Tucson. He is a senior faculty member, clinical supervisor, and a clinical lead for the Center for Mind-Body Medicine in Washington, D.C. He has a clinical physiotherapy practice with Simons Physical Therapy, Tucson, Arizona, that focuses on mind-body integrated care. Matt is also founder of Embody Your Mind, specializing in high-quality writing, teaching, and consulting in integrative and mind-body medicine topics. Matt is also an instructor for Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine and regularly teaches for the University of Arizona Physician, Psychiatry, and Family Medicine training programs. He is motivated to find and promote better ways of delivering whole person health care. And I'm super excited to have you on the show. So welcome, Matt. Thank you so much, Aaron. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited and just so fascinated with everything that you do because I know that it's going to be new for a lot of my listeners. It's new for me. <laughs> so maybe before um, I, I get into specific questions about acceptance and commitment therapy, maybe we can talk a little bit about your background as a physiotherapist and what, kind of what led you to mind-body medicine and that kind of thing. I'd, I'd love to know just, just a quick snippet about that. Sure. Um... I grew up in Iowa, um, so I'm a Midwesterner originally, and I, as noted, I went to PT school at the University of Iowa. However, preceding that, I had uh, jumped around in my undergraduate work from thinking I might go into law to um, business administration to philosophy, <laughs> and finally landed in biology. And uh, before I went to PT school, I was in veterinary school. So after I graduated, and I had a bit of a early life crisis, I guess, while I was in veterinary school, questioning, you know, what am I doing? Uh, high anxiety, and I took a leave of absence, and it was during that time that a friend had said, you know, PT might be right for you. And so on a whim, I applied, short notice, got into the school back in my home state, and within a week or two of being in PT, I kind of had a sense that this was the right path, uh, but I don't think I realized exactly why that mm -hmm. Um, the focus on the physical body, um, I think, had a lot more to do with a deep desire for uh, connection. Uh, and I think my interest in animals had a desire to do with connection, too. But um, what I didn't realize at the time was that my education was, was very much lacking in understanding humans and human behavior. It was really looking at the body as... Uh, uh, as a machine, as a biomechanical function. Mm -hmm. And so that's what really um, uh, became the impetus for me to really want to uh, understand human behavior, human psychology, uh, the psychological and social facets of our lives and the way they affect health. 
uh, and that launched me into a, a lot of the mind-body integrated concepts. I love that. Yeah, I think that, I mean, it sounds like you are a lifelong learner <laughs> and a lover of information, right? Like just jumping from all these different fields, like that makes a lot of sense. And especially like, I, I just love how you found that it's not just about the body, but like how we respond and then the behavior. I don't know. That's just very interesting. And I feel I've been on a similar journey. Like I wanted to just be about nutrition and then it turned into like, Oh, well, wait a minute. What about the way we think about our food and the way we feel about it? You know, all of that. So I think that's so cool um, that that's kind of been the journey you're on. So let's talk a little bit about this acceptance and commitment therapy. What is that? And, and can maybe give a short explanation of what that is. Yeah, it's uh, acceptance and commitment therapy is, is, considered uh, Dr. Stephen Hayes is really one of the early pioneers in acceptance and commitment therapy. And he classifies it as a, a third generation or third wave cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, it has deep roots in uh, the concept of mindfulness, mindfulness traditions and practices. Uh, but what he did was he you know, looked at some of the Eastern traditions of mindfulness and extracted at a, you know, at a more psychological or cognitive behavioral level, the facets that can be studied and, and understood and developed this sort of model. Um, and it, it sort of defines uh, six core challenges that we all have predisposition to sort of in our makeup, in our constitution, in our, in our psychology. Mm -hmm. Um, that can be explored, understood, and then we can learn to create shifts or pivots in response to those tendencies that help improve our, uh, our flexibility towards greater well-being in the way that we relate to and experience life. Yeah, that's, that's so interesting. And so you have a video, I watched one of your videos on this on um, it's on YouTube and I'll, I will make sure to try to link it in the show notes because it's really interesting. And it, you go into each of those, did you call them beliefs? What was it that you call them? The different foundational principles? Uh, challenges. challenges. I, I describe okay. them as common or normal tendencies or challenges that we have in our makeup. Yes, that. Okay. So what are some of those, those challenges and the, those things that, that we all have? Yeah. Um, one that I really like to look at is the concept of aversion, uh, experiential avoidance. It's a tendency to say, Ooh, I can't have this experience. This is unpleasant. No, thank you. And when I look at this, I, I really see this from the lens of, of survival biology, really at an evolutionary basis, we're hardwired for survival. And so uh, novelty or unpleasantness alerts us to potential harm or threat. Uh, you know, it's, it's like the sensation of pain um, is aimed to get us to stop or change what we're doing, pay attention. Something might be harmful to your physical well-being, but also your mental, emotional, or even existential well-being. And so we tend to have this um, uh, built-in response to say, you know, ah, yuck, go away, I can't have this. Now the flip side of that, which is maybe not as named an act, but I think needs to counterbalance that, is that we also have a tendency to latch on to that which feels good. 
ooh, I like mm -hmm. this, more of this, please. And at the extreme level, I might actually liken that to, to uh, one of the many building blocks that might lead someone into addiction, for example, mm -hmm. that I got to feel a certain way all of the time. Mm -hmm. And if I don't feel that way, uh, I'm not okay. And if I don't feel that way, I'm suffering. So I have to grasp after. So it's a wisdom teaching. And in, in, in when I look at different um, cultures and, and traditions and even religions across the world, the wisdom teachings sort of come back to shared truths and this idea that we're both hardwired this, uh, to say, I, you know, no, thank you. I can't have this experience as we are to say, ooh, more of this, but both lead us into suffering. And so the idea of experiential avoidance is one of the six core concepts to begin to look at and see if we can shift or, ch or change our relationship to that dynamic. Yeah. Okay. So you said so many things just then <laughs> that now I'm, I want to dig into. It's so interesting. Sure. You, you mentioned they both lead into suffering. So whether we are avoiding something and um, whether it's aversion, as you mentioned, or we are diving into something maybe maybe it does turn into like an addictive behavior or whatever it is to, to it's still avoiding but then at the same time they're they're both leading into suffering i don't know maybe you could expand a little bit more on that because i'm wrapping my mind around i think that's super interesting yeah i'll start on on kind of the seeming upside of that which is um, an attachment to the feel-good state uh to pleasure but when we consider the idea that everything is impermanent everything is arising and dissolving in our lives uh, as soon as that pleasurable state disappears because it's not sustainable, then we're suffering again. You know, we're, we're in that state. And I, I sometimes use my own example uh, having a history of, of early life stress, early life trauma uh, led me to have a nervous system that was sort of at a baseline predisposed towards anxiety. Mm -hmm. And when I started to do a lot of work around this, uh, I discovered that it's a certain form of body work, um, very light touch oriented body work. Uh, it's combined with some guided imagery. You know, you can call it energy work or alternative craniosacral therapy, for example. Uh, and, and without getting into uh, subscribing to the belief systems that underlie some of that stuff as energy or subtle, uh, the relationship the effect of the light touch, the environment I was in would take me into states where I felt more relaxed than I had ever imagined feeling relaxed, but I'd get in my car and it would be gone. And it mm. would be like, oh, you know, why can't I feel that way all the time? But then the realization that that's not human, you know, that, that it's more the message of being able to ride the waves of the ups and downs and, and return to some I don't know, center place mm -hmm. uh, was the real message. So I, I think that, you know, when the pleasure is gone, we can suffer if we have an attachment, if we've grasped onto it, as opposed to being able to let it go and see it as a temporary, useful, but temporary state that we also have to live in this world, which means we're going to go back into demand or stress and so on. Mm -hmm. And And like you said, instead of trying to go from one state to another, just trying to ride the waves and maybe kind of lean into that and observe what's going on. And instead of just, because I think it is our, our go-to even right now, like I think that we're all, I think everybody right now is kind of undergoing this low level, maybe high level in some cases, just anxiety. 
across the board, right? With everything that's happening. And so we're turning to, I mean, you know, you've, you've probably seen the studies that alcohol increases, that's on the rise, alcohol use is on the rise, um, all these other behaviors that people are trying to escape. I mean, everybody's binging on Netflix and just, you know, because we're in this world where things are unpredictable and they're uncertain. And so in order, instead of like leaning into that, we are all wanting to avoid the potential pain or the potential anxiety of the, maybe what could be, we don't know, right? Exactly. And I think that we're a culture that is not necessarily out of the gates trained to turn towards uh, this type of framework and including an inner life. And with COVID, people are isolated, their Mm -hmm. work and social life is different, everything's changed. And in a sense, these times demand the need to turn inward at some level to be with ourselves, to be with Mm -hmm. our discomfort, Mm -hmm. but people aren't equipped for that. We haven't really built a a culture of, of inner work where people understand and the importance and the relevance of being able to navigate the, the internal discomforts. Um, You know, some people call it groundlessness or dis ease as a take on disease. There's this, uh, these experiences of disease. So we turn towards, I got to make this go away. I I can't have this experience or this feeling. And that sets up these patterns. Um, I use, I, I, you know, I'm a word person. I love words, um, biobehavioral patterns, because what's often missed in this is that I, I might say that the art of living is the art of energy management, but energy is a vague word. And people will say, well, what, what does that mean? Physiological state, the physiological state, the level of arousal or activation that our nervous system is in, from waking to sleeping to different emotional states. Uh, We have to become more proficient in regulating our physiological state for the ups and the downs and to be able to sort of do this. So this isn't just a cognitive construct. There's a, a biological embodied underpinning that has to be woven into these concepts that helps people actually do this. Yeah, because the go-to is is short-term solutions, right? Like I even think yesterday, my daughter, she's almost 16. She makes great chocolate chip cookies. And, you know, and I'm thinking in my head, I'm like, I need... I need some cookies tonight. I need, you know, something. And then I stopped. And I was like, wait a minute. I don't want cookies. I want things to be how they were before. This has nothing to do with cookies, you know, but like I felt this like anxiety or this tension or the stress or whatever. And that manifests in, oh, I need comfort food, right? Like I need something that tastes good, but really no deep down inside. I just want life to be normal again. (laughs) And so, I mean, I guess that would be, that goes along with what you're saying too, right? It's like, we want these short term, we're not dealing with, I don't know, maybe you could explain that a little bit more. What, what, what's going on with me when I want cookies? (laughs) Well, uh, I think that the key word there is comfort. Hmm. Um, when I make an attempt to sort of look at core human needs, uh, and I also link this to some psychological concepts uh, of masculine and feminine principles in nurturance and empowerment. Uh, We're seeking nurturance, uh, care, connection, comfort, and support. And so I think that we're, we're hardwired for that biologically. Um, the flip side of that is, is that we're also seeking our autonomy, our sense of agency, a sense of empowerment in relationship to our experience. 
So when I talked earlier about the hidden determinants of human behavior, I'm often asking myself as I'm working with people and, and, and attempting to understand people's behaviors, uh, the function of their belief systems and what's workable for them. Uh, I, I'm, I'm wanting to, to, to look a little deeper into what, what uh, of these core human needs and, and of course safety uh, is sort of embedded within both of those. Uh, we need safety for survival and, and, and to even explore nurturance and empowerment in a sense. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I don't know if you want me to, to comment on the actual relationship of this to food and eating and, or if you, if, if, I yeah, I'm mean, sure. Yeah, no, go for it. Yeah. I'd love to know more about that. The development of the, um, uh, autonomic nervous system is contingent upon early infant caregiver interactions. And in particular, this involves oral, uh, oral action, oral motor behavior, as we would use in the, the academic lingo, breastfeeding, the, the whole physiology of sucking, of swallowing, uh, of the actions of the mouth is intimately involved in the development uh, of an autonomous autonomic nervous system, the ability to self-regulate. When an infant is overstimulated, the caregiver literally acts including the relationship of, of, of feeding uh, of the mouth acts as the parasympathetic nervous system. It's a soothing, it's a calming, it's a comforting influence. And this is wrapped up in embryological origins. The, the pharyngeal or branchial arches uh, are part of the, the limbic, uh, which is the mammalian, the emotional brain as it's often described as. And so the remnants of this, uh, carry over into all kinds of uh, parafunctional oral habits mm -hmm. that when our mouth is in motion, when our, what's happening in our mouth is physiologically uh, influencing our ability to regulate discomfort, uh, arousal, sympathetic activation, and so on, which is why many people, you know, we bite nails, we chew on pencils, we snack, we smoke, we, you know, we bite our cheeks, we grind our teeth. The, that the, mm -hmm. the origins of this really, I believe, tie back into this fundamental biological need for nurturance, which is a soothing, comforting sort of action. And that is a, I don't think it's the whole picture because there's other aspects of why we might develop um, food associations or even food addiction up, up to that mm -hmm. point. But it's definitely uh, an underpinning. Yeah. So it, it starts with, and that kind of goes back to what you were saying before about the nervous system and and if our if we aren't regulating or our, our nervous systems are in a state of dysregulation then we are going to struggle with responding to things like the current crisis that we're in and it's it's going to be really hard to have any kind of embodied acceptance right because exactly. we're in this dysregulated state and that starts from the very beginning from the very beginning, I would say, yeah. And, and they, we also know that the development of this whole infant caregiver is, is part of attachment biology and attachment psychology. Mm. That influences our threat appraisal system, the way in which our nervous system is evaluating for possible threat to our well-being. Internally in the body, externally in the environment, uh, mentally, emotionally, existentially at a cognitive level threat appraisal is linked into this. And so in polyvagal theory, 
Um, Dr. Stephen Porges has done a lot of work on this, and, and a theory is a theory. It's being put to the test increasingly. Um, having said that, this particular model um, carries a lot of intuitive uh, truths, I think, and one of them is that the physiological state that we're in, i.e. if we're dysregulated, restricts the range of behaviors that are accessible to us. And at the, the simplification of this, which is a, a gross oversimplification, but it's the idea that when the brainstem has been hijacked, it's in charge. Mm -hmm. The sympathetic defensive responses of fight or flight are impacting our behavior. The access or utilization, there's inhibition to some of our higher cognitive functions, our ability to see the big picture, you know, our ability to actually access the wisdom of a model like acceptance and commitment therapy is somewhat inhibited. So in those moments, it's not as easy as, as it might be to talk about it right now to actually put this into play and be responsive because um, uh, that, that uh, capacity is actually inhibited in some regards. That is super interesting. Yeah. So if you're in fight or flight, if we're in this chronic stress mode, it's one thing to talk about, yeah, this is acceptance and commitment therapy. This is really helpful. You know, let's <laughs> do this. Um, but then to actually put it into practice when you're in that state, because when you're in that state, like you said, you, it's really hard to make clear decisions. It's really hard to do anything with a whole lot of thinking beforehand, because I, when we are in fight or flight, that's when we make those quick decisions, right? Like those, um, I'm going to eat the cookies. I'm going to, you know, watch five hours of Netflix or whatever, you, you know, I mean, it's, we go to those, those things that are short term and it, so how do we get to a state where we can recognize, I guess that would be the good question. Sorry. I'm like still everything you're saying I'm mulling over cause it's so fascinating to me. How can we get to a state where we can put these things into practice? How does it take regulation first? Like what are the steps? How do we do this in real life? Mm-hmm. I think there's different routes and avenues and the answer to that will look different for each and every person to discover how to actually translate it. I would offer a couple of fundamentals. One is in acceptance and commitment therapy, the concept of dropping anchor has to do with one of the other pivots. We tend to live in the past or the future. How do we actually come back to the present moment? And the idea of dropping anchor is to restore connection with our embodied presence for me, it's very much a physical practice to come into a deeper conscious sense of the body, what's happening in the body, what's my posture, is my jaw clenched, you know, are my, are my shoulders um, up to my ears? Uh, so we become uh, body aware, we become aware of the breath. We, we somehow try to direct ourselves into what's happening right now. Um, and so this is um, part of it. And, you know, the, the opposite of experiential avoidance is acceptance, which is the acceptance and commitment therapy. But we have this tendency to go around. Uh, I, I'm often joking, and I just used this in an example with a patient yesterday, of the old sitcom Seinfeld. Mm -hmm. And there was an episode where Kramer and George Costanza's dad were going around every time they'd get irritated or angry, they'd say, serenity now, serenity now. <laughs> and at the end, the, the character smashed all the brand new computers. And he says, oh, man, I feel so much better. He said, that serenity now stuff is dangerous. 
So we can actually use ideas like, oh, I need to let go. Oh, you should just accept things. Um, and it actually becomes a form of experiential avoidance. We're not able to actually be present to what's happening. And so for me, acceptance at an embodied level is learning how to actually be aware of the body and soften the jaw, soften the face, slow the breath, relax the shoulders. So when we start to actually do this, maybe with the little stressors, we may not be in a full-blown fight or flight trigger in our life. Mm -hmm. It becomes cumulative. It becomes a, a learning process. It becomes transformational over time. That's kind of a starting point in, in how I might work with it. Yeah, no, that's, that's really good because I don't think people realize how often we do walk around with clenched jaws and tight shoulders, or, I mean, I'm a slumper, I'm slumping right now. So, <laughs> you know, like we just don't, we don't realize that. And we don't realize how much tension and stress our body is carrying. And maybe you could speak to that part too. You know, I, I've heard it said that when we have a lot going on stress-wise in our brain, it comes out in our body because our brain can only process so much, right? So what are some ways that you work with people and how, do, how does our stress show up in our body? I think there's common tendencies. Um, and then I think that there are very unique avenues via which that will happen on an individual basis. So I really try to use a I'm going to use more big language and then translate it, a phenomenological heuristic, enabling people to come to know their own experience and define it. So I might use a springboard of our common metaphors, like I got the weight of the world on my shoulders, or I'm shouldering a lot. Mm -hmm. And if we look at just the relevance of that single example, the upper trapezius muscle, which elevates the, that chronic shoulder, upper back, neck tension, the nerve that controls that comes out of the brainstem in the same area where all of this cranial nerve biology that's part of the vagal theory, um, oral motor behavior, there's an organizing principle to those cranial nerves. And so what I start to do is, is I use general examples of how common patterns of stress that many of us can relate to, you know, uh, a chew on that for a while or a, Oh my God, I'm not digesting this very well. Huh? Digestion, for example, or it's breaking my heart, are controlled by the vagus nerve. That's the 10th cranial nerve. Well, this nerve to the top of your shoulders is the 11th cranial nerve. They're side by side in origin in our brainstem. Mm. And so I start to sort of have people develop a sense of awareness of, you know, when you're emotional, when you're stressed, when you're triggered, how does it land for you? What do you notice happens? Do pain levels show up somewhere? Does tension, constriction, holding, or guarding? And I know you had asked or this um, when we were talking about this session, that wherever there's aversion or avoidance, I believe there's going to be tension found somewhere. Mm -hmm. I believe that at the mind-brain-body uh, interface, that these tendencies of aversion and avoidance translate into the body. They translate into holding or guarding or posturing or tense movement or constriction or whatever it may be. So I really use an, an avenue of body awareness to help people begin to identify these tendencies. And then from that place of awareness, we can begin uh, the process of, in a sense, habit retraining. Uh, I might be more apt to want to use the word transforming that pattern. Um, but that's where I would start. 
Yeah, that's good because we're not, you know, as we mentioned before, we're not super body aware as a culture in, in this way. Like we don't, we just tend to push forward. And I don't know what that is about just keep going, keep pushing, you know, like reach your goals. Like we're just so goal oriented that we don't stop to assess where we are in our journeys, you know? And I just think like as kids, what kids are, are, are trained to do and like, how could something like this I mean, maybe that would be my next question for you is how could something like this be beneficial for our kids so they don't grow up holding on to all of this and creating these habits of tension because they don't know how to deal with the discomfort in the day to day. Do you work with kids? I do. Uh, it's not the bulk of my practice, but I do get some referrals for um, kids, not the real young ones, but maybe I, I sometimes seen people down to age six, seven, eight. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some adolescents. And, um, you know, in our work at the Center for Mind-Body Medicine, we have a whole uh, training track that's the, the children's and teens track, which is how to translate the, the foundations of mind-body medicine, mind-body awareness, uh, and regulation into those age categories. Mm-hmm. And some of my colleagues who, who that is the core of their work often weave it into social-emotional learning programs so which which is a you know a big word in education and child education is 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 helping facilitate social emotional learning yoga does the same thing there's all kinds of yoga practices for kids and they do build upon developing body awareness and developing age appropriate understandings of stress um you know i often will use puppets uh or examples like you know what does the deer do when it senses something in the environment you know, and then people can't see this right now, but the head comes alert and, and it, its whole system is primed for the possibility of a need for fight or flight. Mm-hmm. But if it determines, oh, it's just a bunny rabbit over there in the bushes, it then relaxes and goes back to grazing. And so it can go in and out of that. But sometimes we get stuck in that deer looking for a threat state. Mm-hmm. So there's ways to begin to to translate this by working with you know, with puppets and and analogies. And I use animals a lot um, to help convey it. You know, like what does the turtle do when it's threatened? (laughs) It pulls into its shell, right? It it protects. So the idea of protection and, and we help kids feel this in their bodies and and then uh, be able to practice very simple skills like a, a simple breathing or the expression of emotion. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's so good. I wish, I mean, there's so many things Look, I'm again, so glad I know what I know now, but looking back, even at my own journey, my own mental health history, it's like, man, I wish I knew some of these things early on. And I remember I was a big theater nerd as a kid, that whole escape thing probably. But, um, I remember in my, one of my classes, my teacher walked us through kind of a guided imagery meditation and it was my favorite thing. I loved it. And I never could, I mean, now I get why, but, and I'm so glad that she introduced that to me, but I'm like, I never understood because it was really relaxing for me. And it was kind of taking me out of that, that chronic, you know, fight or flight state that I was in. And so um, I think that being able to, to teach that to kids and I think schools, I think, like you said, I think a lot of educational programs are kind of starting to implement this more. And I think there is a movement happening, which is really good. Um, yeah. So what are some practical ways to incorporate mind-body practices or even acceptance commitment therapy? What are some things we could do day-to-day? Say I'm 
you know, I'm, I'm watching the news and I, I try to avoid the news, but say I'm watching the news <laughs> and I feel triggered, right? Or say I'm on social media and somebody says something and it really makes me mad. What can I do to become aware of that state? And instead of avoiding it or maybe getting mad at myself uh, for thinking a certain way, what can I do to lean in? I would say that some of the answer to that is, is rooted in what we've already talked about, which is the body awareness, you know, coming, dropping anchor into the present moment. So we can actually begin to track and detect how what we're interacting with is affecting our biological, our physiological state. So am I getting aroused? And if so, why am I getting aroused? At the cognitive level, and this is one of the other um, core challenges or tendencies when we fuse with our thoughts. So they call this cognitive fusion. Mm -hmm. um, I think similar to aversion or avoidance, when we fuse with thoughts and there's a strong charge an emotional tendency embedded within that, that also immediately shows up in arousal, activation, tension. It's a physiological, it's a physical embodied response. And so when we notice that, uh, there's uh, other practices that help us at the cognitive level to defuse. And I like to use the analogy of, of uh, the fish and the hook, that thoughts are the hook and I'm the fish. And if I, you know, latch on to the thought, I've, you know, I bit the hook, I get pulled into the water, I'm in a struggle, there's tension. Mm -hmm. And so the question becomes, how do I unhook from that thought? And so in, in, in the ACT model, they also teach practical skills for unhooking. One of them is the, you know, being able to look at your thoughts instead of through them. And that's an important distinction that if I'm looking through my thoughts, they become a filter on the lens of my camera. I'm not clear seeing anymore. It's filtering how I'm experiencing this information or this person. And so it's sort of like unscrewing that lens on the camera so that I can see more clearly what's really going on here. Um, they might also use the leaves on the stream, which is where you imagine taking your thought, placing it on a leaf and watching it go. So you become more proficient at unhooking and not getting sucked into the stream of thoughts. Another one I use a lot with my patients, which I also used yesterday was, um, uh, the tickers on the bottom of the television screen, the, the news ticker, the weather ticker. I say to people, okay, this thought is activating me. It's arousing me. Uh, I'm going to pull it out. I'm going to place it up into that, that stream and I'm going to watch it go by. You know, I can begin to sort of go, why is my mind um, getting activated now? Or I might ask myself, what is the unmet need here? If we look at this, the safety, the nurturance, the empowerment, why is this carrying a charge? Why am I getting worked up about it? And tie, try to tie that back to my needs, uh, to the body. You know, there's, I'm giving a lot of ideas here, but they're all pointing towards the same thing, that there's different ways of, of integrating what's happening in us cognitively. We've fused with our own beliefs. So how can I unhook from that? How can I step back into a bigger context? I first have to regulate myself, mm -hmm. or that has to be at least a part of the equation, even as I'm trying to make the cognitive shift. Yeah. Yeah. And that awareness and going, okay, 
that, where did that come from? <laughs> that's interesting. <laughs> that's, that's good. Um, you mentioned just briefly, and I know you've gone into it before, and, and then that video is self as context. How does viewing self as context help us in, in this way? You know, I think that core to the very structure of what we'll call the human ego, and some people who, who hear the word ego automatically think to, to the negative idea of mm -hmm. selfishness or narcissism, which is part of the ego, but I'm looking at this in a very general lens that we all have uh, I-ness, me-ness. You know, we're built on individualistic society. You know, my name, me, I type language. And the self is content is when we're only really relating to our experience from that I-ness, from that me-ness. To expand into self as context, it's, it's being able to recognize uh, a much, much larger landscape, the much bigger picture. Um, at the level of something in my body, I could see that pain in my lower back is a part. It's a passenger on the bus, but there's lots of other passengers. And we don't often ask, well, what's right with your body? Our focus becomes just on the part. So the self as context is not just about me, 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 but it may also be a hyper attention or hyper focus on a single part, which fails to acknowledge what's right the larger landscape of the physical body or of my life that we become overly, uh, it's a, t it's like a tunnel vision just on one part. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure if I answered the question. I got a little off there, but, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, just that whole, like, so seeing ourselves in context with the bigger picture, instead of hyper-focusing on that one thing, it's just another way, right. To, <laughs> to view things in a different lens. Because when we get hyper-focused, right, that's when we can't get out of the stuck, the stuck place, which I think a lot of us, a lot of people right now are in a stuck place of, you know, oh, we're never going to be able to go back to normal or, oh, we're never going to, you know, we make these, all these assumptions because we're not looking at everything. We're just looking at this one point in time, right? Exactly. Yeah. You know, I, I've experimented continuously as a part of a process of creativity, uh, being open to new ways of, of teaching these ideas. And one that I've done sometimes myself is, is to, to notice what's happening in my body. And I just say, me, 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 for a while to see what that feels like. And then the reminder of self as context is that I'm not alone. There are others out there with similar challenges. Uh, they may not be in my field right now, but there are others out there. Um, and and to, to, to promote the idea of a more collectivist view of interdependence and, and social mm -hmm. connection and family and, and a strength-based approach, I'll say, we, 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 and I notice how that feels different to me. Hmm. Or if I'm focused on just one little piece and I'm losing the picture of all that's right. And I definitely have this, you know, sort of, well, we all have a negativity bias, but some of us have it more mm -hmm. of focusing just on the negative of more, 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 more. There is much, 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 much more. Mm -hmm. And I notice how that feels to me to actually, you know, make that statement. But then how, how does it land in my yeah. felt sense and my sense of being? 
so that we're expanding outward. Yeah. Yeah. No, that that's really good because we are so many of us are limiting ourselves to the negative that we're hearing and it does, it makes it worse. <laughs> like it just does. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I love those reminders. Um, so what's, is there anything else you could share? I mean, time is flying by. I would love to know a little bit more about just, you know, I know there are a lot of people out there that struggle with chronic pain and, you know, dealing with ongoing pain treatment, things like that. What, how do you help people in an integrative way when they're dealing with that? Yeah, this is hard because, you know, pain by its very nature is a profoundly unpleasant experience. The sensations are very difficult to experience. They're designed to put us into the defensive protection mode at that survival level. I think that we have to, you know, in the ACT model, there are, um, you know, different acronyms. Um, uh, one of them is moving from fear to act. Uh, fear is fusion with our thoughts, a negative evaluation of our experience. We're only seeing the negative. Uh, avoidance of our experience and or reason giving for our behavior. And when we move to act, it's increasing that embodied acceptance, choosing a valued direction, which is a piece we haven't really talked about, but we have to help people really look at what's vital and meaningful to me in my life. Uh, even spirituality comes into play here is, is there a purpose? Uh, what am I living for? What's, you know, in the end, uh, what matters most? You know, one of my favorite quotes is from the movie, ben The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Uh-huh, yeah. Strange, strange movie, but it's very <laughs> interesting. And there was... Um, the the button manufacturer, it was Benjamin Button's dad, uh, was on his dying moments. And he said, you can curse and swear the fates. You can be as mad as a mad dog, but in the end, you have to let go. And I try to help people look at this from what's important, what's valuable, what is, you know, is it my family? Is it my spirituality or my religion? Is it my work in the world, can we identify something? And then we help people with realistic actions, not putting the focus just on the pain or even necessarily that the pain is gonna go away, but the focus is on valued living, workable valued living. And so that's a process, it really needs some guidance. Um, There's a lot of self-learning resources. I I think that um, Russ Harris out of Australia has some of the best sort of home learning guides and manuals and books and materials on applying act, uh, including in relationship to persistent pain. Um, so, you know, it's, it, it's a complex question, but that's a piece of it that I would suggest. We have to focus on what's in our control, acknowledge our and experience and process our thoughts and feelings, stay in our body, despite the fact that there's unpleasant passengers on the bus mm-hmm. that are part of the body and to, to continue to engage in what we're, what we're doing and what's vital. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that reminds me of what you mentioned earlier about how so many people, we get caught up in that kind of that tunnel vision and, and only seeing the one thing and only seeing the negative and instead expanding that outlook, I think is so helpful. Um, and I, and I think that that's something that I don't know why that is missed in a lot of discussions when, when we talk about 
mental health or physical health, or we, we forget the importance of everything that you're saying, you know, and, and seeing the bigger picture and finding a purpose and, and just that positivity, it, it just, it changes a lot of things. And, um, so I think what you're doing is, is so interesting. Um, and I guess we're getting close to running out of time. So let me ask you one last question. If you could, cause you know, this is called sparking wholeness. So if you could give one piece of advice to spark someone towards wholeness, what would, what would you say? Uh, I'm glad you asked. And I think because there was a piece I thought, oh, I really have to say this, that mm -hmm. what we just went over is easier said than done. And in our individualistic society, we put the sole responsibility for achieving that on ourselves. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's done alone. I think that we are interdependent and that every self-concept, self-regulation, self-awareness, self-expression has to be co-awareness, co-regulation. We need the support of others yeah. in relationship at some level, whether it's a professional, an interpersonal relationship, a group. You know, our work at the center is group-based. So social building, healthy support systems, social support, professional support has to be the backdrop because we can't really embody act just purely on our own. Um, yeah. So I, I think I'd put the emphasis to an answer to that question is, is, is look for this in our relationships uh, and seek out the support um, that we need. Yeah. Yeah. That's so, so true. And right now is a time where I think a lot of people are feeling isolated. And so this is more important than ever. I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up. It's so, so important. Um, so where can people find you and, and get more information about your work? Yeah. So I have a couple of websites. One is embodyyourmind.com and that's, it needs a work over, but it's got the core of my background and teaching and consulting work. It's got a lot of links to papers and books and chapters and stuff that I've um, been a part of. Uh, Integrative Rehab Practice is a website for continuing education. It's a 45-hour online course for integrative care for rehabilitation professionals. And we just wrapped up the submission, two-year project to, to submit this manuscript of a book called Integrative Rehabilitation Practice, Expanding Whole Person Care. It's really about um, building in whole person support. Um, you can find me at uh, my, my work at the Center for Mind, Body Medicine, cmbm.org. Um, I have a clinical practice. If anyone's in Tucson, Arizona, who's listening, I have a clinical <laughs> practice at Simon's Physical Therapy in Tucson. So, That's awesome. Great. Tons of resources. Well, thank you so much for all of your knowledge and wisdom. And I think that you know, what I love about talking to people like you is that just for selfish reasons, like I'm just constantly just putting together puzzle pieces of and my own health and wellness, you know? And so I really think for other people who are listening, it's, it's going to be the same thing. I think a lot of light bulbs are going on right now. And so thank you so much for that. And thank you for coming on and sharing. Thank you. This is about connecting dots. And when we do it in ourselves, it naturally facilitates others to connect with the dots, but in their own unique way. So thank you. Absolutely. I, that's a great, I love that connecting dots. I'll remember that. Thank you. <laughs>
For more on all things related to nutrition for mind, body, and soul, check out my website, sparkingwholeness.com. Don't forget to be kind and subscribe to this show wherever you listen to podcasts. And to be really kind, you can leave a nice review. I like those.